shock resignations, an unexpected leadership contest, gay sex headlines in the tabloids. It's been quite a month for the Liberal Democrats. In today's Guardian Unlimited political podcast, we'll be asking what next for Britain's third party. You're listening to Oliver King. I'm here in the office of Chris Hume, one of the candidates seeking to succeed Charles Kennedy. Dubbed the dark horse of this contest, Mr Hume is the newly elected MP for Eastleigh, but a, p- a politician with considerable experience in the European Parliament and a former Guardian economics editor. Chris, welcome to your first Guardian Unlimited podcast. Um, and, uh, well, I, I need to start by asking you about um, today's headlines. I mean, when did you, like me, when you heard about Simon Hughes this morning, go, oh God, whatever next? Um, I... I had a lot of sympathy for Simon because it seems to me that there is a degree of prurience in the tabloid press in particular which uh, uh, sometimes I find even after all my years on Fleet Street slightly shocking and I think we ought to have grown up as a society to a point where frankly sexual orientation shouldn't matter I mean that was something which we pioneered in the Liberal Democrats Uh, we've now had a Labour cabinet minister who's gay we've got Tory front benches gay. All the major British political parties are now saying that sexual orientation shouldn't matter. And therefore, for this to be such a storm is, I think, very regrettable. And I know from my European experience that in other countries, it's now uh, perfectly normal and accepted that leading political figures can be gay. The Bertrand de la Noy, who is the mayor of Paris, is gay. Um, Guido Vestavella, who's the leader of the German liberals, just fought a very successful campaign uh, there is also gay. You know, big deal, frankly. It shouldn't uh, be allowed to interfere uh, with people playing a part, a full part in public life. But do you think he should have admitted it when the Independent and the Guardian asked him about it? Well, I know that Simon has apologised for that and clearly regrets that um, he took the decision that he did. Uh, And I'm, you know, not do not want to be the person to start criticising him for that because I know what the pressures can be when the media pack is in full cry. I've actually been on the other side of this. Um, When I was, uh, after my period on The Guardian, actually, I was the business editor on The Independent, The Independent on Sunday, and what we had then, uh, we were leading the investigations on Captain Bob Maxwell and his raiding of his pension funds. So I've had some experience of the difficulties of... uh, Uh, the media pack, um, and uh, I know that the pressure's there, and I certainly don't want to criticise Simon for the decisions that he's taken. And you're quite happy that there's nothing in your past to come out? Well, um, anybody is very welcome to uh, interview my wife, who I'm sure would give a very long list of all my faults she often does to me, Um, and uh, I am certainly by no means a saint, Um, but I am happy in my own shoes, Uh, I don't feel, and obviously I thought about the whole issue of media intrusion uh, quite carefully because I care about my family and kids and so forth, and uh, I came to the conclusion that I was prepared to put up with. I have to say, uh, after the last few weeks, that I do hope that there is a little more self-restraint on the part particularly of some bits of the tabloid press because if this sort of uh, extraordinary pressure... Uh, is the norm for people at the top of British politics. I think it's going to put an awful lot of good people off coming into British politics. So that does worry me. But I'm happy in my own shoes and I'm prepared to put up with the scrutiny that uh, time and tide will no doubt uh, throw at me. Do you think the the last few weeks, Charles Kennedy's um, admission of a drink problem, his resignation, Mark Oton's resignation, um, have damaged the party in any way? 
Well, lots of people have drawn parallels between this and what happened to the Conservatives at the end of the 1990s, but I think it was a very different situation. I mean, the Democrats have never got on their high horse and told people how to live their lives. We've never uh, preached about family values, and therefore uh, we haven't set ourselves up as moral arbiters of how people individually ought to behave. Uh, and I think that was the real problem for the Conservatives in the 1990s. You know, there they were preaching uh, all of this stuff and then being found clearly not to practice what they, what they preached. Uh, I think there will be short-term damage, but I'm confident the party will recover uh, very quickly because we are now a big party. I mean, the last election result, biggest number of Liberal Democrat MPs uh, since 1923. Uh, we actually have a very substantial share of the councillors across the country, control of big cities like Liverpool, Newcastle, Southampton, Portsmouth and so forth, Birmingham, uh, where we're in coalition. So, I mean, there are, this is a very different animal politically to the animal that you might have thought of 20 or 30 years ago. We're not about to... Uh, uh, fold a tent because of some short-term turbulence. And I think that the liberal values that we have, particularly belief in civil liberties, belief in international law uh, rather than war, uh, belief in the environment and what's needed to actually deal with problems of global warming, a fundamental and passionate belief I have that if we're going to have world-class education and health uh, services. We've got to have local democratic control over those services. All of those things. That nobody else in British politics is actually championing those causes. So if it isn't us in the Liberal Democrats, who is it going to be? Uh, and therefore there is an enormous role for us continuing uh, in British politics. And I think we have a very good launch pad at the last election for going on to greater things at the next one. Many people have suggested that David Cameron has um, moved onto your territory and uh, you're suffering the natural consequences of, of being squeezed by a liberal conservative um, at the top of his party. Well, David Cameron has clearly made this pitch um, and we've had all sorts of the usual sort of flummery and nonsense about, uh, you know, he's expecting defectors from the Liberal Democrats, etc. Well, I mean, I believe this is just wishful thinking. The reality is, if you look at David Cameron's track record, this is the person who wrote Michael Howard's manifesto at the general election. This is the person, whatever he says about his track record on green issues, who actually voted against the climate change levy. This is the person who, when he accepted the leadership of the Tory party, immediately announced he was in favour of a bigger road-building programme. I mean, just look at the difference between what he says and what he actually does. And, you know, as an old journalist, and I'm sure you will appreciate this, you should judge people by what they do and not what they say. So I'm underwhelmed, frankly, by uh, David Cameron's credentials uh, as a uh, so-called liberal, uh, and particularly uh, on the environmental issue, but also on some of the other areas, where actually he has a voting track record on the Iraq war, for example, of being in favour of it, on civil liberties of being decidedly wobbly. Uh, I think that our role will be to to expose uh, his uh, claims to be a genuine liberal for what they are, which is pretty sham. Let's talk about you and the, the reasons why you've entered this race. Um, you've only been elected uh, since May. Um, it's a bit quick to be uh, running for the leadership, isn't it? I've actually been elected since 1999. I was elected to the European Parliament in 1999, so I've been a parliamentarian for six years, which means that I've been a parliamentarian for two years longer uh, than David Cameron. Uh, and I think it's also very important that politicians should have a bit of a hinterland. That they shouldn't just be regarded as party apparatchiks who've done nothing else in life except climb the greasy pole. And I spent uh, 19 years on Fleet Street uh, working for The Economist and then 10 very happy years on The Guardian and then uh, on The Independent and The Independent on Sunday. I was then headhunted to go to the city and start 
uh, what became the largest team of uh, economists in the private sector in the city. Uh, so I've built up a business, built up a team, uh, and I think that I've got the skills, both the communication skills to come up with crisp messages clearly on often complex ideas. Secondly, the ability to build a team. Thirdly, the ability to unite the party. Charles Kennedy actually asked me to chair uh, the group which looked at one of the most difficult policy issues for us, the reform of public services during the last parliament. And we had, I think, a very successful uh, result where we have a very coherent and interesting policy which is relevant to Britain's needs and had overwhelming support uh, at conference. And I also have experience in the European Parliament of working with other parties in order to deliver a Liberal Democrat agenda and without losing the Liberal Democrats' overall crucial distinctiveness. I believe we must remain an independent party fighting our corner for our values and our principles uh, and pushing as much of our agenda as we can conceivably implement. Um, the Guardian poll uh, on uh, this week suggests that you're... Uh third place um, at the moment. I mean, how much of a mountain have you got to climb? Well, it's been a very interesting campaign, and I think the uh, undoubtedly I, I started as an outsider, um, and uh, I think uh, I've been closing the gap. I think by common consent, people think this is a genuine three-horse race now, uh, and that I have a genuine chance of winning uh, this contest. The Guardian poll uh, had a recognition factor, obviously, which was very low. I have to say it was twice as high as uh, David Cameron in a similar poll at the beginning of the Tory contest. And if you look at what happened with David Cameron, this is the year of the outsider. And I think the crucial thing for a party in selecting a leader is to look at the qualities that that person brings to the leadership, not at what they've actually managed to do in terms of public recognition uh, at that point, because on that basis, frankly, nobody uh, would ever get to be party leader, since always the party leader is overwhelmingly more recognised than anyone else, and we saw that in the Guardian poll, where there was a dramatic fall-off from the recognition accorded to both uh, Charles Kennedy and other former leaders like Paddy and David Steele, uh, down to Ming and Simon and myself, who are much, much less well-known uh, well and well-recognised. So parties have to get used to uh, selecting someone who they feel uh, has the qualities necessary to lead the party and present the party effectively at the next election. And uh, I'm a great believer in the collective wisdom of our members after this uh, whole uh, election battle, when they've heard the arguments, heard our views, heard the way in which we express ourselves, seen, I hope, us on television, uh, decided who is the best face for the party. I'm uh, very happy to respect the collective wisdom of our membership. Many people would suggest that um, given the, uh, the scandals that we've seen uh, in the last few weeks, that um, many of the party members might actually want to pick the safest option, which would probably be uh, Sir Ming Campbell, um, because he would, you know, seen as a as a as a figure of stability and 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 unity. Um, are, you, are you concerned by by that? And uh, and I mean, how can you counter it? Well, I think there are very clearly two unity candidates uh, in 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 the race here. Uh, Ming has enormous authority, fantastic talents. I have a fantastic respect for him. I'd be delighted to work for him. I tried to persuade him to stand last time uh, for the leadership. Uh, but I think that uh, don't underestimate my own capacity to unite the party uh, and my own capacity to deal under pressure with very difficult media events. I think uh, uh, the last few weeks is a very clear and instructive example of how 
uh, that can that can happen. Uh, so my media experience, my ability to unite the party around difficult policy issues, uh, particularly on the domestic agenda, I think is very important. Ming is, of course, a great authority on foreign affairs. Uh, my experience has been very much on the domestic side. I'm an economist by background. I can take on uh, Gordon Brown uh, on the economic issues. I can actually say that Gordon Brown has uh, clay feet when it comes to uh, his meddlesome instincts in the economy. Uh, and that's perhaps something that members also need to take into account. Uh, Nick Clegg um, was suggesting that, uh, that w uh, where the party is at the moment, um, that uh, the, obviously he's supporting Ming Campbell, um, and, the, and the reason for that is that he says that um, uh, the next leader of the party can't be somebody who is looking over their shoulder to see if their colleagues are behind him, given what happened to Charles Kennedy, and that only Ming is, can be that person, and that because you've only just recently arrived in Parliament, how can you be... You haven't built up the, uh, the, the length and depth of um, relationships with the MPs uh, to, to such an extent that you can guarantee that they'll be behind you. If I'm elected at the beginning of March, I'll have a fantastic mandate from the party membership, and I'm absolutely confident in the relationships that I've got right the way across the party, having built, been built up over many years. I've been active in our politics for 25 years, you know, since the Limehouse Declaration in 1981. Uh, I have fought uh, for Parliament on two previous occasions, and I got into the European Parliament. Uh, so I've been knocking around the party for a long time, and I think that that is an experience which is relevant. I also have experience of team building. I know how to uh, make sure that a team is functioning effectively, both from the time when I was managing 48 journalists in the business department of the Independent, the Independent on Sunday, and then building up the largest team of economists in the private sector in the city. Now, none of those... Uh, are bits of experience which other leadership candidates have. Uh, and I often think people go into politics thinking that everything that they need to know can be learned on the green benches, and it's often not the case. I've been very struck, for example, at the uh, extent to which uh, often people find it hard choosing the right people to work for them, uh, motivating staff and keeping a team together. These are things which are important and not necessarily best learned in the House of Commons. You've, su you've suggested that there are two unity candidates, which uh, you didn't mention Simon Hughes, which makes me suspect that you think um, a Simon Hughes uh, leadership would be a disaster for the party. No, I don't think a Simon Hughes leadership would be a disaster at all, and I've made it very clear I'd be prepared to work very happily for anybody who wins uh, this leadership election. But Simon has traditionally been associated, and all credit to him, uh, with, if you like, the, uh, the liberal radical uh, side of the party. And inevitably, uh, that's uh, where he has his deepest connections and deepest friendships. And I respect that. I have friends in that wing of the party myself as well. Uh, but I'm very much in the mainstream, middle of the party. I'm neither uh, in the, 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 the radical end nor uh, the uh, market-oriented uh, Orange Book uh, right wing uh, end of the party. I'm in the middle of the party. I'm a unifier. That is why Charles Kennedy asked me to chair the Public Services Reform Commission, uh, and I think I can show that I was successful in pulling the party together on what was regarded as a very controversial issue when I was appointed, indeed. Some of my friends in the party said, well, that's the poison chalice. That's the end of your political career. And, in fact, they couldn't have been more wrong. In terms of um, the other differences with uh, Simon Hughes and Ming Campbell, um, environmental taxation has has been won earlier in the campaign, but uh, now um, you're, making, you're making something of your opposition to um, renewing Trident. 
I do think that we need to continue the process of changing the uh, way in which our armed forces uh, operate. Uh, if you like, we still have a legacy uh, of decisions which were taken before 1989, before the fall of the Berlin Wall, before the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, I'm not a unilateralist. I'm a multilateralist. I believe that in a world where we have nuclear proliferation, we need a minimum deterrent, and I certainly backed uh, the need for that uh, in the Cold War uh, context. Post uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, I do question whether we need quite uh, such a dramatic um, uh, and powerful uh, nuclear deterrent as Trident, um, or whether we might uh, cut our cloth to fit what I think is a much less serious geopolitical threat. Uh, and therefore, I would like us to look very clearly at a minimum deterrent, um, which is less expensive and uh, less uh, forceful uh, than Trident. And I would like us to continue the process which includes looking, at, for example, at the, the, the bases that we have in Germany, which also are a relic of uh, the, the pre-Berlin uh, Wall um, phase. I would like us to continue looking at the build-up of what we need to take a really active peacemaking and peacekeeping role. I'm worried, for example, that the latest announcement of uh, troops going into Afghanistan uh, is going to lead to overstretch. Uh, and I would like us to have a debate in the House of Commons uh, about how ministers see uh, being able to meet all the requirements which they're now putting onto the armed services. And I think we need to accelerate that process in the Ministry of Defence and moving away from the legacy of pre-1989 Cold War uh, defence and more towards the new uh, needs which are supporting particularly the United Nations and also the European Union in peacemaking and peacekeeping. We're about to enter a dramatic moment for the Labour Party when they decide um, what they're going to do about uh, school reform. Um, now, where, where do you stand on this? Is, 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 would you, are you in favour of um, Tony Blair's solution of, um, of independent schools, or do you think <clears throat> that, uh, along with a lot of Labour MPs, that um, actually the LEA should, should, should keep control um, uh, over these schools and, and ensure that um, selection doesn't come through the back door? I think that the local education authority has to have the overall guiding role uh, on education in its area. Uh, that is because if you, although I'm in favour of as much choice for parents as one can possibly manage, uh, there comes a point at which somebody's extra choice is bought at the expense of reduced choice for other parents and other pupils. And in the end, in the extreme case, uh, where you're allowing schools basically to choose the pupils, you're not getting actually parents choosing schools, you're getting schools choosing pupils. And that's not the choice that uh, I think parents want. In my own area in Hampshire, I've talked to, uh, to the Director of Children's Services on this, the grand name for the Director of Education, and in fact, in over 90% of cases, uh, parents are already getting uh, their first choice of school, both for primary and secondary education. So I think for a lot of the country, uh, this is a, 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 a very important uh, point where we want the local education authority to continue. I think there are particular difficulties in the urban areas, in particular London, uh, but also some of the other big cities where the education authorities have not traditionally been that good. They haven't been as focused as they should have been on uh, the needs to support children and give them real life chances. Uh, and I think that we need to address those issues by making sure they're properly resourced and by making sure that they're democratic. Most of the problems in these areas 
have arisen basically because uh, local education authorities, local authorities, uh, are elected under a system which means they're often not contestable, not competitive. So you get rotten boroughs uh, in labor control often or in Tory control, which have been there for years and years and years, often on a minority of the vote. If we had electoral reform, as is happening for uh, local authorities north of the border in Scotland from 2007, you'd get a really competitive, contested system, and I think you'd get better, more responsive public services for local people if that happened. So I think that's an important part of the solution, not the solution that Tony Blair is putting forward, uh, which in theory would be giving parents more choice, but in practice might well be reducing it. Are you worried that the Liberal Democrats have sometimes been uh, perceived as um, opposing um, uh, reform of the public services um, and, and haven't been uh, at the forefront uh, in, in terms of health and, and, and education in the, in the last parliament um, of you know, extending, extending choice and, uh, and, and you know, deepening the reform? Well, we should certainly never be seen uh, as being uh, on other than the side of the users of public services. That's the crucial thing. I mean, the health service is there to make sure that anybody gets the best possible quality of health care whenever they need it, whenever they're sick, and regardless of their means. That's an absolutely fundamental principle. Now, um, I happen to believe, as uh, having chaired uh, the Public Services uh, Commission, which looked at this, that we actually have the most radical plans for reforming the public services of all the parties. But it's called democracy. It's actually about introducing the power of the ballot box so that when in my area, in Hampshire and Southampton, Winchester, for example, if people don't like the service they get at the Southampton General, at the moment the first elected politician they can hold to account is Patricia Hewitt, miles away. She probably has never visited the Southampton General. She doesn't know uh, what's going on there from Adam. Uh, and we need to have local decision makers who, if things fail, can be booted out, and if things succeed, they can be patted on the back by the local electorate. And that is the way the most successful health service in Europe operates. The Danish health service has the highest patient satisfaction rate. Uh, it's a national health service like ours. It's tax-funded. It's free at the point of need and of use. But the Danes regard uh, one national health service, even for a country as small as five and a half million people, as being far too centralized. So they actually break it up into 16 separate units, two cities, 14 counties, all with their own democratically elected boards running the health service. That's the model I would like to see. It means that there'll be much more experimentation, much more creativity, much more innovation in the public services. Uh, and that's going to be great because actually the people who succeed will be a model for others, a pioneer for others to follow. People who fail will be a warning and people won't. Uh, follow them and you'll get the same sort of sense of development and of, of, of innovation uh, in the public services that are an absolutely standard feature of the private sector economy where companies try things if it doesn't work they try something else uh, and I think we need to introduce that, that, that local emphasis on public control that's what will make a real difference. And Christine finally um, it has been suggested um, possibly unkindly, um, that, uh, this, that your bid for the leadership is um, uh, just a, an application for a better job uh, in the uh, Lib Dem shadow cabinet. It's undoubtedly an application for a better job. That job's called leader. But, I mean, well, you don't really stand a chance, do you? I, absolutely, I certainly do. And I wouldn't have dreamed of standing if I didn't think I stood a chance. Uh, people have been saying this since I entered the race. The first thing that happened was that uh, I clearly went past Mark Oten, our very experienced uh, uh, home affairs spokesman in public perception, long before the problems that uh, beset him personally. Uh, secondly, um, my 
position was clearly drawing up uh, level with uh, Simon Hughes uh, in challenging Ming. Uh, so we've been making real progress. And I think people are gradually warming uh, to the point, first of all, that a fresh face is no bad thing. Uh, secondly, that experience outside politics, media experience in communicating messages crisply and simply, team building experience in business to make sure that we all operate in a, in a way which is uh, happy and consistent together as a fantastically talented team uh, that we are, uh, that we have a real impact on British politics at the next election. I am very ambitious for our party. I think we have a great launch pad in the result that we had at the last election, and I want to see us move forward from that. I'm not a bridge to the future. I actually want to win now. Christine, we'll be watching you. Uh, thanks very much for joining us.